0: Um, in large part the reason that I'm standing up here is because when I was in college uh, I took a class in the Psalms which I know all of you did in college also I didn't know that the Lord was calling me into ministry and I say that and that doesn't sound super surprising I'm taking Greek because I'm like I want to know the New Testament better I'm taking Hebrew with six graduate students in me because I'm like don't we want to understand the Old Testament how come everybody's not signing up for this And I'm taking his course in the Psalms, thinking I'm going to teach and coach, um, because I wanted to do both of those things better than I had seen it modeled, even though in in retrospect my teachers and coaches were great. And in the class on the Psalms, by visiting, turns out to be Presbyterian minister, um, who also had a PhD, so he was allowed to teach at the state university that I attended, we explored a scheme of working with the Psalms that I am incredibly fond of and it's this there are Psalms of orientation praise on a good day there are Psalms of disorientation where we lament lament is the biblical word for whining at God there are Psalms of reorientation where we lament and then something in our situation changes and we leave the prayer fully confident in his good news and the reason that I'm standing up here now is the first psalm that he asked me to present on, because he knew I was a Bible language geek, and that I was passionate, That he gave me Psalm 137, which is about the darkest chapter in the Bible. As the nation of Israel had been exiled uh, by the nation of Babylon, some heinous, awful things happened. And the nation of Israel wanted God to treat the Babylonians the way that they had treated them. And so they pour out their hatred. Not expecting God to do it, but with full confidence that He takes that hatred seriously. Switch. I don't want to teach and coach anymore. God wants that intimate of a dynamic between me and Him. I can't do anything other than this. So about... Twenty-two years later, here I am. Still a very, very big fan of the Psalms and how intimately God invites us to relate with Him and to Him. Most of my pastor friends do not like this scheme for the psalms. They want to spread the psalms out into the royal psalms and the messianic psalms and the imprecatory psalms. you are like, what's an imprecatory psalm? It's a cursing psalm. But theologians have to call them imprecatory so it doesn't sound too aggressive. Even though David prayed, Lord, break their teeth. I really like orientation and disorientation, reorientation. I really like knowing that I'm not only allowed to pray ugly, it's modeled for me in the scriptures. Don't believe me? Check out Psalm 74, 79, or 88, or 137, or 109. Just off the top of my head. I love the Psalms. And what I encourage people to do, when you want a moment of spirituality, open your Bible to the middle. That's the only book in the scriptures that function for our direct devotional use. All of the Bible is devotional, but when we open the Psalms, specifically whatever day of the month that it is, so today's November 5th, we open to Psalm 5, and we allow Psalm 5 to pray us. And what will happen is, you'll spend about 10 or 12 minutes, that's all it'll take. Psalm 5, Psalm 35, Psalm 65, Psalm 95, Psalm 125, and you will pray to God the full range of the emotions of the human experience in trust. Not that he's going to fix everything, but that he takes your life and mine very seriously. There are promises about the future, but the Psalms tell us what to do in between. And one of the reasons that a lot of my pastor friends don't like teaching the Psalms this way is the goal according to Jesus is love for enemy not break the teeth of the enemy but how do we get there how do you get from and you have enemies by the way I'm going to talk about this more so just bear with me for a second you have enemies just for about 11 minutes take my word for it I'll explain in a minute so how do you get from today some knowledge that you have enemies to loving them I think a big step is honesty with God in prayer. You ever feel stuck in life, relationally, at this church that's just like the island of misfit toys except for Jesus? You've been at the same job for eight years or 38 years doing the same thing? Do you feel stuck? What do you think God wants you to do with your stuckness? Grin and bear it? That's not what David does here in Psalm 5. This is a morning prayer. M O R N I N G. He begins his morning praying to God about the fact that he feels stuck. Give ear to my words, O Lord. I'm in Psalm chapter 5, verse 1. Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God. For to you do I pray, O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. That's how I figured out that this is a morning prayer. There it is, verse 3. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. The Psalms speak as one who is speaking to God about life as they actually experience it. Does God hate anybody? No. Does he hate evil? Yes. So what's it like for a follower of Jesus to watch evil people succeed and struggle with that in prayer? That's what's happening here. You with me? You understand? Okay. You destroy those who speak lies. We'd all just be destroyed if that was a propositional truth. It's given to us in prayer for our help. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man, but I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness, because of my enemies, make your way straight before me, for there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. Are you catching what Dave, are you picking up what David's putting down here? He's got some enemies, and he's being real honest with the Lord about what it's like to be near them. They flatter. ...with their tongue. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may exalt in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield... David begins the prayer with a request and he ends the prayer with a request which tells you and I that nothing changed. How do we pray when there's no change? I know that this is not the most inspiring message, first of all, let me finish. But second of all, what kind of dishonest pastor would just tell you if you pray this way, everything will be different forever? Is that life as we experience it? God is so much more gracious than that to actually offer us a way of relating to Him when we feel stuck. Jesus went to the Psalms as His prayer book. He probably grew up singing them. On the cross, He quoted Psalm 37. In Gethsemane, He cried out in disorientation to God. Romans 8, there's a beautiful description of the Holy Spirit. It says it groans alongside us. That's wonderful, right? Because you and I have some things to groan about. Right? Well, what's the implication? Not just that God is so wonderful that he groans alongside us, but that you and I are groaning in prayer. Do we? Do we groan? In prayer, I was talking with some folks after the nine o'clock service, and they said, "I feel like I'm supposed to have my act more cleaned up than that in prayer. I feel like I'm not supposed to be honest about my enemies." One person was talking about an, an enemy within their family, and they they pointed to their friend and their friend and said, "My friend said that I should restore the relationship." And then they started talking, and it became clear that yep, yep, they probably should. <laughs> And that that would take some work. Well, what's the work? What's the spiritual work that gets you and I to a place that we actually want to reconcile, or at least try to make peace with an enemy? It's this. It's honesty with God, which involves groaning. Literally. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Would you go ahead and maybe, maybe could we just acknowledge for a second, maybe picture the thing you want to groan about, the work situation, this particular church, your family. Ugh. Ugh. Let's go ahead. You know why we're not all groaning? Because we think we're supposed to be more spiritual than that. You and I are not supposed to be more spiritual than the Bible. We're not. We're supposed to follow its lead. Consider our groaning, O Lord. See, we're so unwilling, right? Because it sounds weird, right? You know why it sounds weird? Because it's such a visceral human expression of life as we actually experience it. And God, especially in prayer, does not want you and I to come before Him with a sanitized, over-spiritualized whatever. Prayer is groaning. And watching. I don't know about you, when when I was growing up, it was implied that spirituality was largely about learning. I was supposed to sit down with my Bible and read a chapter of it and learn something every day and therefore become like a better Christian. That was me growing up. See, that's my physical, I don't know. And spirituality certainly involves learning, but it's certainly not less than learning to watch. And to listen and to groan and to pray. If Jesus used the Psalms to pray, maybe you and I need even more than more information. We need to learn to pray like this. That's why my encouragement is to take Psalm 5 and let it pray us in the morning. And then take Psalm 35 and 65 and 95 and 125. And on the day that you hit Psalm 119, that'll take longer than about 10 minutes, but most days it'll take about 10 minutes. And the whole spectrum of being a human, we pray to God when we use that way. David says in verse 3, In the morning you hear my voice, in the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. And the psalmists pray, how long? Which is about the most repeated phrase in the whole book. It's a move of watching. There are a lot of ways to watch, but prayer is about watching too. It's not just getting the words right. I would say it's far more about being honest with God about life as we actually experience it. Which is a move of trust. But then we watch. There are a lot of ways to watch. Lately, when I pray, uh, I have a journal like this big. I have a lot of journals. I have a journal about this big. And I pray here and I leave space over here and then I go back to it and see what's different after a couple of weeks. That's a way of watching. There are some people at this church that love a practice called listening prayer. Listening prayer, among other things, is a way of watching and pausing to speak to the Lord and then wait and listen. It's what David's referring to. Another way of watching is just to pause. We pray for a few moments and then we pause. And the reason that we pause is we're actually expecting our spirituality to deliver something to us, right? Don't you expect prayer to do something if you haven't given up on it? That's a good desire. Throughout the Psalms, there's this full expectation Some of them, you can actually kind of sense what happened. So in Psalm 30, David prays because he's very physically sick and he's healed. And so there's a pause in the psalm and then he begins praising. In this one, nothing has changed yet. This is a psalm of disorientation. This is a model for prayer when we feel stuck. And yet, even when we're simply praying our disorientation, we're expecting something. I was at the beach a few weeks ago and I uh, went out to watch the sunrise. I don't do that very often because I like getting up early. But I did go out and that's not my picture. I very purposely didn't take my phone to the beach which is very hard for me to do because what, what if it had been a great sunrise? But I didn't take the phone because all I wanted was to sit and watch and it was, it was pretty good. Give it like a B plus as sunrises go. I expected the sunrise to do something in my being, just its expression of beauty. Do you ever go looking for beauty, expecting it to matter to your heart? Does it catch you off guard ever? You got up at that time, the sunrise was perfect, and you can't see all of it from your house, but you could see some of it, and you were caught by its beauty? Perhaps in a piece of music or some other way? our prayer is to matter. And you, I think you and I know that and we experience it and we sense it and then we don't know how to pray the full range of our emotions. And it's part of the reason that we don't sense the peace that Jesus purchased for us on the cross because we do not pray with the honesty of the psalmist. Prayer is groaning and watching when we remember who God is. And remembering who God is sounds so like nothing about that partial sentence is surprising to you. Except, in this psalm, it's in the midst of, For you're not a God who delights in wickedness. You hate evildoers. You abhor the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. David is remembering the Lord in the midst of his enemies. You have enemies. You are, there are men and women in your life that aren't for you. That's all I mean. I don't mean they're going to attack you with an axe afterwards. Like we think of Bible times, they would have these big clashing fights with swords and shields. And that allows us to separate from the fact that at your place of business, there's probably someone who's not for you. What do you do? Well, just love them. Jesus said love them. How's that going for you? Can you just squeeze your emotions into submission? What about in your family? There's somebody in your family that's not talking to anybody else? They won't speak to you. It wasn't even something you did. It was someone else, but you didn't shun that other person and they're mad at you or whatever. Not that this has ever happened in my family. (laughs) There are people in your family that are not for you. Jesus said, love neighbor and love enemy, which means love everyone. But how do we get there? I mean, if you can just squeeze your emotions into submission, you're probably psychologically hurting yourself. There's like a little pro wrestler that lives in your being and just needs to get out of there. That's a terrible analogy. That's not in my notes. And this is why a lot of other pastors, especially when I was younger and I was more anti-authority and feisty in my explanation of how important the Psalms are, didn't like It's because Jesus said, love enemy, but how do we get there? I mean, how do you get there in traffic? There are people in traffic that are not for you. Right? No, seriously. I mean, it is funny. It's good that you laugh at my spectacular joke. But don't, aren't there people in traffic that are not for you? What do you do? Well, I'm just going to ignore them. You can't do that in Connecticut because you have no idea how they're going to handle that stop sign. Right? I'm serious. Just literally. No judgment. I actually love it. It's like a game. (laughs) But they have a 3,000 pound machine with a combustion engine and steel and chrome. You can't ignore them. So do you just choose to love them? What do you do? I think we need to learn to be honest with the Lord about our enemies. Which is the human way of engaging the call to neighbor love. At no point are we called to be more spiritual than the Bible. David says, break their teeth. Darkness is my closest friend. I wish you would pay them back exactly the way that they sinned against me. Is God going to do that? I don't think so. But he takes it seriously. Which is real faith. We expect our laments, it's a biblical word for whining, whining, We expect our anger. We expect our requests to God to matter. And there's one reason, and it's so important. It's because of His covenanting love. It's the Hebrew word chesed. It's one of the reasons I love the English Standard Version of the Old Testament. If you have an NIV, every time you see the word love in Psalm 136 it's steadfast love and because of our culture we think of love as like all oh, feelings no this is a covenanting love Sally Lloyd-Jones calls the love that never stops never gives up always and forever love which would increase the pages like 40 pages in our Bible if we translated it that way but maybe that's how we should translate it because we think of love as all feelings we remember who God is he is a God who covenants. We break the covenant. He does not. That's verse 7. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love. It's okay if you have an NIV, just add a little... I'll teach you how to write the the Hebrew. You just write it next to the word love every time throughout the Psalms and you can remember that it's a covenanting love. There's one other thing in here that we kind of have to cover um, because for some of us it jumps out and we don't understand how God can be a God of love that we are supposed to fear. Did you catch that in verse 7? But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. And in 2017, like, safety's really important. And fear is really bad. How much time do we have? Alright. The biblical sense of fear is more closely related to you and I's word, awe. Not awe. A-W-E. Awe-inspiring. What awesome meant before it meant nothing. Like today, it means nothing. The power of God, His holiness, His loving kindness, His pursuing love is something that stirs our hearts in awe but also there's a real fear the same way you and I define it. And the reason that that's important is because there are enemies, not just the people in traffic, but enemies of sin and death. The one who overcame sin and death for you and I did that because his power is such that if we imagine it with any clarity, we're a little afraid. Not afraid without love, afraid with love. The movies, in my opinion, totally did not capture this very well, but in the Chronicles of Narnia, they ask if Aslan is safe, and they say, of course he's not safe, but he's good. When the psalmist talks about the fear of the Lord, that's not it has nothing to do with God wanting us to feel afraid all the time, but it is a reminder that he is powerful. And do you know why you and I need that reminder, among other things? Because we need to know that He can and will judge. That's maybe an even less cool word in 2017 than fear. And yet, there's so much injustice. What's going to be done about it? God is a God of power and holiness. And He executes those things well and justly. And with love. But he is that powerful. So I don't know if I made you more happy or less happy with the word fear. The way that David remembers who God is, he remembers that God leads and protects and covenants with him. Those are some of the words from Psalm 5. It's what we do in prayer when we allow the psalm to pray us. We notice God is one who leads us and protects us. And who covenants with us. Covenants I'm getting from steadfast love. Who is steadfastly loving towards Him. And then we learn to wait upon Him in hope. Again, this psalm begins with a request and it ends. Nothing's changed. Which is such profound hope that God teaches us how to wait on Him in the midst of our disorientation, in the midst of a medium or a long season of struggle what we do in the meantime is we're honest about life as we actually experience it to him in prayer groaning lamenting remembering who he is actively speaking to our soul about who he is Let all who take refuge in you rejoice. That's a gritty word, refuge. I think that word is better than so much of our sanitized spirituality. Refuge means perhaps the world we walk through is one of just wreckage. And yet there is refuge. And how we experience that in addition to corporate worship, is in prayer. So I encourage you to let the Psalms pray you. That's how gracious God is. He not only meets us exactly where we are, He gives us language to return to Him in full honesty about our life, our sickness, our mental illness, our families, our workplaces, even traffic. We return to him as a refuge. The Israelites' dominant memory of salvation was of the Exodus. It was of the Passover where they were brought out of slavery, real slavery. The New Testament uses that as a metaphor. It's not a metaphor, it really happened. But the New Testament uses it as a metaphor to describe the work of Christ that you and I experience when we approach his table. In the midst of learning the language of the Psalms, there is still hope. Hope in God who will make all things new. Hope in God who offers to us a feast for our strength and for our good to give us an ever-increasingly undivided heart towards him. So as we approach the table, it is a more fully realized hope that we have been freed, those of us who call Jesus Lord, from sin and from death, which are even worse slaveries. Would you pray with me as we then approach the table? Father, we thank you that you are a refuge. For our past stories that you're sorting out for us. For this present moment when many of us are disoriented. And for our future that we have hope. That you are growing us up in love. That you are entirely sovereign. Though we will not understand that until we are with you. Father, teach us to pray like the psalmists. Direct us away from an over-sanitized, hyper-spirituality that is in fact not what you call us to. Because of the work of Christ, help us know that we can approach you in full honesty, knowing that you take all of our prayers with the utmost seriousness. Give us a sense of your Holy Spirit, Lord. Amen.